Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Did you take out any student loans? Was it worth it? I mean, I was already poor before I took out the student loan, so there's not anything I could have changed. I still needed the money. I think at the time, I didn't really have a big understanding of loans and how it was going to affect me later on, especially if I did not finish school. I should have just did more research. Parents didn't help me, so it was all on my own. I wanted to go to college. I applied and I got into Queens College, but then I realized it just wasn't for me, especially since I knew. Obviously, you have to pay the student loans back because it could be expensive. I would have needed to take out student loans at most schools that I would have gone to, and I really did want to come to New York and experience a different walk of life. (laughs) So yeah, I regret it and don't regret it at the same time. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and welcome to the show. We're going to talk this week about the American dream, the truly material version of it. The idea that in this country, you can earn your way into a secure, stable, middle-class life, which is an idea that economic policy after World War II made manifest. The GI Bill of Rights is not a reward or a handout or a gravy train but rather an American way to make it easier for each man to take his place once again in the community and get some of those things for which he went to war. A job, a business, an education, a home. That version of the American dream was, of course, restricted by race, by gender, by sexuality. You had to be a certain type of American leading a certain type of life to get help making it real. And that's a lot of what Lyndon Johnson's great society was meant to fix, right? Social movements pushed and pulled and fought. And by the 1960s, the federal government had started broadening access to the dream, to democracy, to job rights, and higher education. For the individual, education is the path to achievement and fulfillment. And for the nation... It is a path to society that is not only free, but civilized. And for the world, it is the path to peace. For it is education that places reason over force. It unquestionably succeeded in its goal. The number of people, particularly Black people and immigrants, who get access to college education skyrocketed. Since 1965, the number of people enrolled in college has more than tripled. But that success, it has also become a huge problem, one that's on a lot of people's minds as they go vote this fall. 45 million people owe over $1.7 trillion in student loans today. About a third of those borrowers, they don't even graduate. And relief from that debt, it is now among the most ardent demands coming from progressives and from young Democratic voters. President Biden answered that demand, in part, at least, earlier this year. And so now, for a whole other group of people, the relief is an insult. Why should you get a free ride when I didn't? We are once again reminded that the value of the American dream, in literal dollars and cents, is up for debate. We begin our conversation about that debate and its history with our producer, Rahima Nasa who invites us into her own family's conversation about what the dream is worth. Lately, I've been spending a lot more time at my parents' home in the Bronx. 
They've shifted many things around since I moved out, but the living room looks the most like how I remember it. There's an old flat screen TV from 2007, three ornate chairs, and a walnut china cabinet filled with teacups and tchotchkes. On the wall, across from the TV, neatly placed in a glossy frame, is my college diploma. It's a little embarrassing because none of my friend's parents did this. The only places I ever see a diploma framed on the wall like that is at the doctor's office, not anyone's living room. My dad never asked me if he could put it up. Did you see other people put it in the living room like this or like what made yeah, you want to put it in the living room? Uh, I like to see, you know, this, uh, I come living room and uh, I see again and again. And I like to proud to, you know, my daughter. I was the first one in my family to go to college. I loved going to school so much that I even got a master's degree. My dad wanted to hang that degree up too, but I forgot to send it to him. Anyway, everything pretty much worked out the way I expected. I studied to be a journalist, and that's exactly what I do. It allows me to have a comfortable life. I have health insurance, savings for retirement. I have paid time off. And I got to choose to take a job that I enjoy. I am in a much better place than my dad was when he immigrated to New York from Bangladesh in 1986. This is exactly the future he wanted me to have. Many would call it the American dream. But I have more complicated feelings about it, especially about how much it cost to get me here. I took on about $50,000 in federal loans. Plus, my family had to pay around $8,000 each year toward tuition. It's money they could have used to retire or work less now that they're older, but my dad isn't hung up about it. Um, I don't care of the money, but I care is, uh, you know, this our life and uh, education. This is the purpose for I spend the money. You go to the Dunkin' Donuts, maybe you $15,000. And if you finish the college, you maybe $100,000. That is the difference. My dad uses Dunkin' Donuts as an example here because that's where a lot of Bangladeshi people in New York City work, including my mom. Many of the men are cab drivers, which is what my dad does. My parents wanted me to have a good office job, like a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. Yeah, those were the only options. I had other plans. I wanted to be a journalist. So I Googled the best college to study journalism, and that landed me at... Syracuse. 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 Others say Syracuse. 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 Syracuse University. We pronounce our name, we all shouted proudly. Being a journalist isn't quite what my parents had in mind for me. In Bangladesh, journalists get killed if they investigate the wrong people. So my parents were skeptical if this was a career that would give me a better life. It did. What we didn't realize is how much the American dream cost. I've been carrying a lot of debt. The $50,000 in loans was more than my yearly salary for my first couple of jobs. And before I switched to an income-driven repayment plan, my estimated payments were over $300 per month. Even though I always paid the minimum payments, it just seemed like I was never gonna pay it off. Unless I wanted to switch careers, which I didn't, it seemed like I would be stuck with this debt for the rest of my life. When I look at my balance, I wonder if I made the right decisions when I was 17. Did I take on too much debt? Should I have gone to a different school? I don't have a time machine, so I can't really answer those questions. I found the next best thing, though. My name is Janine Capocruset, and I am a writer and novelist and essayist. And I've worked as a, a counselor to first-generation college students, and I am myself a first-generation college student. She also took on a lot of debt to go to a fancy school and get a degree in the humanities. What a disappointment we are, huh? <laughs> Janine graduated college more than a decade before I did, and she's been grappling with these questions for a long time. She tells me one of the reasons it's hard for so many first-gen students to make a financially sound decision about college 
is because it's not clear what exactly we're buying. I had to make such an important decision at 17 about what my future would look like. Because part of what you're trying to decide is what do I need or want from a college experience? And how do you make that decision if you have no idea what the college experience is like, aside from what like popular culture shows you it is? Yeah, that was definitely true for me. I wanted what Rory Gilmore had. I can't believe it. I'm actually standing outside of Harvard. I'm just trying to have a normal college experience. You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? You want to have a happy and successful life? You go to college. Seeing all this on TV reinforced my idea that where I went to school would impact the trajectory of my whole life. So why wouldn't I go to the best school I could? And really, this wasn't a question I could debate with my parents. I took the lead and they followed. Janine knows exactly what I'm talking about. Like you have to have a lot of trust, not just in your child, yeah. but in this big system that honestly you should not trust. Right? Yeah, because it's so a business. It's a bunch of contradictions. Yeah, it yeah. is a business and it's hard to keep that in mind. And I'm really glad that my parents trusted me yeah. to make that decision and supported me because they had to pay. They still had to, you know, I was yeah. in a lot of debt, but they had to pay. And again, it seemed like an insurmountable amount of money at the time. And it was for them, given their income bracket, right? Yeah. And I just felt so much guilt about it the entire time. And so in college, like, I pushed myself a lot yeah. to, like, get the best grades and every single penny is going to count. Oh, my and, God, I did the same thing. Oh, my <laughs> No, seriously. Like, everything I'm you like, say, I'm getting my money's worth and I'm getting their money's worth. Exactly. And it's sad to think about college as this, like, I mean, it's not sad. It's the reality of this capitalist enterprise of exchange. And I was like, yeah. if I'm, I know that because I'm paying so much money, I'm going to do more with yeah. it. And so ultimately you want to pick the school that will keep the most paths open for you. Mm -hmm. um, that might be one way of thinking about it. But then how much is that worth to you? And that really is an unfair question mm -hmm. because some people can afford more choices than others. Yeah. And it just feels like such a like, it's like, why did you spend all this time in my life telling me about education being the great equalizer and, you know, the past of the American dream when really it's like, really like money is a real factor. Mm -hmm. And I wish people were more honest about that. Um, well, in all the ways that schools entice you to choose that exactly. is money, right? Yeah. It's like, look at this facility. Look at what we offer here. Look at the earning potential of our graduates. Look at the starting salary of somebody six months out. Like all those factors are connected to money. And so essentially it's a kind of it's a kind of gambling. It's a harsh way to think about what has been seen as the key to middle-class stability. This, quote, investment in education can cost the average borrower close to $30,000. So it does start to feel like a gamble and one that can impact your financial future for years to come. After a break, Rahima will tell us how that gamble worked out for her. Then Heather McGee joins us to break down how the student loan crisis got so bad in the first place. And we'll take your calls. Stay with us. Hey everyone, this is Kusha. I'm a producer. A couple weeks ago, we did an episode about the growing movement of Christian nationalism and how we should consider its impact on our country. We received messages from some of you about how this is showing up in your own life. Here's one message we received from a listener named Maxine. As a Jew in America who is 81 years of age, I cannot remember a time when we did not have Christian nationalism. When I was a child and went to school, we sang Christian hymns. Jewish holidays were not observed. So in some ways that's gotten better. But still, every time somebody talks, they assume that you are a Christian and you have to always tell them you're a Jew. And that's what my mother told me when I was a kid. You always tell people you're a Jew. And thanks to everyone who's listening and talking to us. If you've got anything to say about this episode or any other, send us a message. You can record and send a message right from our website now. It's notesfromamerica.org. 
That's notesfromamerica.org. Just click the green button partway down the page. All right, thanks. Talk to you soon. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and we're thinking about student debt this week. We're going to talk history and hear some of your stories in a bit. But first, our producer, Rahima Nasa, is going to finish telling us the story of her student debt and what it cost her family to make their American dream real. After I finished school, I didn't have a plan for how I was going to pay my student loans off. I just kept making the payments with the hope that they would eventually disappear. Sometimes my thoughts got bleak. What if I lose my job? What if I can't pay them anymore? What if I can't retire because I still have this debt? Then this happened. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans. In addition... Students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. So this debt relief will bring my balance down to about $18,000, and I can use money in my savings to pay the remaining balance. So for the first time in my adult life, I could be debt-free. If it wasn't for this relief program, I probably would be paying off this debt for another 10 years. It's a thing I'd have to think about when making decisions like getting married, buying a home, or starting a family. And now I don't. I'm really lucky. I know that for so many people, $20,000 in relief would only be a small dent in their debt. And... This problem is going to get worse because going to college has gotten more expensive. It's very unlikely now that if you are going to college that you are not taking out some form of debt to do so. Um, And so that just is a reason for us to probably pause and say, like, is this the kind of bastion of opportunity that we thought it was? That's Zakia Smith-Ellis. She's a former secretary of higher education for New Jersey. And it's interesting because in a lot of places, access to credit can be a way to get um, more opportunities. So, you know, if I didn't have a mortgage, I wouldn't have a house because I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to just <laughs> liquid to be able to to buy a house. And the same principle applied to um, colleges. I took on my debt because everyone told me it would be worth it. All the advice I got about going to college suggested I should go to the school that met my, quote, individual needs. That meant a reputable journalism program, at least one building that looked like Hogwarts, and lots of famous alumni like Robin Toner and Lakshmi Singh. Then you will feel the pull of Syracuse. I felt like this was my dream school. You will know the power of this place and why so many choose to call it home. There's certainly like a segment of mythos of American higher education that is like your dream school with Ivy running up the walls and it looks a certain way. Um, and we have a lot of our identity tied to like where we end up going to school, right? Like your alma mater is like a piece of who you are in a way that makes the decision um, feel very big. If you have your sight set on this is the one thing that I need, then, you know, kind of any price will justify going there. Um And any school at any price for any program is probably not right. But here's what was going through my head at the time. It will all work out because I earned this and this is where I need to go to school if I want to be successful. Now, looking back, the idea of best just feels so squishy. Did I make the wrong gamble? So here's what people don't understand. That's Ron Lieber. He's the author of The Price You Pay for College. There is a list price at every school. In his book, he guides people through the complicated process of paying for college. Also known as the rack rate if you're in the hotel industry, right? Or um, full coach, right? If you're traveling in the back of the airplane and you want the flexibility to 
you know, cancel your flight and get your money back or whatever. Um, so in college, this is referred to as the cost of attendance, right? So at the most selective institutions in the country, um, maybe 40, 50, 60% of the people are paying full price. Um, those selective institutions usually have a lot of resources um, and they give generous financial aid packages. So what I'm hearing is that you can actually haggle over the price of the American dream. And that paying for college is kind of like buying a plane ticket, where you have to figure out if the cost of the flight is worth the destination. Except, you know, I hope you're not borrowing thousands of dollars for a plane ticket. Anyway, by looking at it this way, I guess my deal wasn't that bad. When I went to Syracuse, it cost over $45,000 to go there. And my flight, it was about $18,000 a year. I still wish I had Ron with me during this process when I was 17. Instead of going straight from studying for the SATs to parsing through my parents' confusing financial records to figure out how to fill out my financial aid applications. Knowing all the things that you know about me in this short conversation, do you think that I made the right choice at 17 to take on all that debt? You're close to paying it back, uh, to, to repaying it full at a reasonably young age, and you are, maybe it doesn't feel this way, but it looks to me as an outsider, um, you are working at a first-class organization, um, you know, in the tippy-top of your field, right? And so maybe you're not earning what you think you deserve, right? And I would encourage uh, all of the bosses to give you uh, uh, the biggest raise possible. Like, you, you've made it, right? It probably yeah. doesn't feel that way with the debt hanging over your head. But, I mean, look what you've done. Yeah, I'm in a better place than my parents. That's the whole point of the American dream, right? Yet, it still doesn't feel like I won something. My parents still work the same jobs they did when I left for college. Except now, they're older and move a lot slower. I worry about how I'm going to take care of them as they age. I'll probably put off starting my own family because it doesn't seem fiscally responsible right now. The economy feels shaky. There's lots of talk about a recession coming. Housing is only getting more expensive. Financial security feels distant. So yes, I am grateful that my debt was forgiven. It just seems hard to dream about a prosperous future right now. That was our producer, Rahima Nasa. Six states, all with Republican leadership, have sued to block President Biden's student relief plan. Last week, a federal appeals court put a stay on the program while that lawsuit gets resolved. This is Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and we continue our conversation about student debt and, more broadly, about opportunity in this country with someone who has spent her professional life thinking about how we might restructure our economy and our society to make more opportunity for more people. Heather McGee spent two decades at the think tank Demos, including four years leading it, where, among other things, she helped insert the idea of debt-free college into the public debate. She's testified before Congress. She's written legislation and research. She's made the rounds of the big political TV shows. But she looked up one day and thought, Maybe she was doing all this the wrong way. Um, maybe she needed to think less about policy and more about beliefs. So she quit her job and she set about traveling around the country to learn about our beliefs. The result was her best-selling book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, which is now also a podcast where you can follow along as Heather travels the country gathering stories about racial healing. And the conversation about student debt right now, it seems like an ideal space in which to unpack some of the ideas in Heather's book. So Heather McGee, we have invited you on to talk about that. And thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kai. So let's start where Rahima concluded her own story. Um, she says, uh, on one hand, her family has done it, right? She's got the American dream they wanted for her when they moved to here from Bangladesh. And that's all wonderful and great. 
But at the same time, she feels deeply insecure financially and scared about the future. And I just wonder if there is something universal uh, about the American economic life in that emotional duality that she's describing for herself. Well, there is something universal, and that's because what Rahima's describing is, I mean, you know, she talked about it like her own personal decision, but it was really about a set of policy decisions that this country's leaders made over the course of the last two generations to shift the burden of paying for college from government, which used to pick up the tab for the type of school that the vast majority of people go to, right, which is a public college, not like Syracuse, but a Mm -hmm. public college, we shifted the cost of that from the government picking it up to individuals and families. And we did that exactly at the precise moment when we went from being a 90 plus percent white college going population to a majority or at least plurality uh, student of color population. And when that diploma, right, that degree became the ticket to the middle class. And, and that's, that's what's very frustrating to me about so many of the, the ways in which we've sort of personalized this story mm. of how one makes it to achieve the American dream. It's mm. never been something that someone, you know, sort of consumer reports to their way to, right? <laughs> it was never about a personal choice. It wasn't about shopping more, um, more correctly. It was always about public goods, right? Public policies that said, hey, this is the kind of foundation we want to build for a strong middle class. And all the stuff that you said at the beginning um, with the GI Bill um, uh, sound, you know, like this is, this is about um, what kind of country we want to be. This is, you know, President Johnson saying this is how we want to be competitive in the world and have more peace, right? An educated citizenry is a public good. And over the last 40 years, we've made it a private cost. Yeah. I mean, it is very much the experience for folks now that you are sort of consumer reporting yourself uh, into college. Um, that's a, yeah. that's a really evocative way to put it. Um, wait, just for folks quickly to, to give us a time frame, when you say, you know, we made that switch um, right mm-hmm. at the time that uh, that we went from a ninety percent college going uh, white college going population to 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 more people. What what are we talking about there? Yeah. So um, the beautiful archival that you played at the beginning of the show, right, shows the GI Bill in the 1940s. And then with the Great Society in the mid-1960s, you saw the expansion of um, the kinds of investments in higher education, you know, to really meet every family who'd contributed to our nation's prosperity, right? Black, white, brown, um, immigrant families as well, right? And so you had this period of time um, for the first sort of two-thirds of, you know, what we now call the American century, right? The 20th century, when you had these ever-increasing numbers of students going to and graduating from college. This was a really smart investment. Um, It was paid for by a mix of state funds, funding their flagship and community colleges, and then federal grants that didn't have to be mm-hmm. repaid, but not loans. And that was sort of the formula, right? And there's, you know, lots of different estimates, but, you know, in terms of economic growth, we were seeing about a $4 return for every dollar invested in that kind of public good. And then we began to see what I call drained pool politics, but this sort of anti-government pro-tax cut fervor across state legislatures where they began to dramatically cut back on funding their state higher education systems and a federal decision uh, to shift from grants to loans to let the Pell Grant, which Mm -hmm. was the sort of real way that um, working class families were able to pay for college with grants, let that atrophy so that it really um, just paid for, you know, dimes on the dollar of, of, of the cost of college and instead introduced this new thing, which really had not been a part of the life of, frankly, most of the college going uh, experience of most of the people in Congress today, which is interest-bearing loans, right? Yeah. The idea that you can graduate and pay back something and then still owe interest for, you know, decades. Um, basically, the profit that the government is now making off of the American dream. Mm-hmm. 
You, in your work, both in your book uh, and in your podcast, uh, are trying to sort of understand the bigger picture for how we may, how and why we make choices like the ones that you just laid out. And I want to talk about that because in my introduction, I mentioned uh, your career arc um, and you tell a story in your podcast about the moment that you decided what you were doing as a policy researcher and as a policy advocate wasn't quite the contribution you wanted to keep making. And you say uh, that there was a moment of epiphany that happened while you were on live television. Um, So can you tell that story here on live radio? Sure. Um, So, you know, it was a set of kind of, you know, little light bulbs, right? And this was definitely one of them. Um, Basically, I'd I'd worked um, with some extraordinary colleagues at a, a think tank, really focused on economic inequality, right? And the the sort of theory of the case was, if we do research, if we, you know, craft evidence-based policy solutions and we advocate to get them in front of policymakers and business leaders and sort of make the economic case, that they'll make better economic decisions that are going to be in our sort of collective economic interest, right? That inequality is costing us so much, it's not actually so expensive for us to get back on the right path and sort of let's just convince people with power to make better economic decisions. And there were sort of a series of experiences um, really coming after, you know, the eight years of the Obama presidency where it became clearer and clearer to me that there was something else going on, that there were these invisible headwinds. And what you're referring to is a moment in 2016 when I was on a live um, television call-in show on C-SPAN called Washington Journal. And a man um, who identified himself as Gary from North Carolina uh, called in and said, I'm a white male and I'm prejudiced. Uh, and then he went on to explain his prejudice in, in vivid detail mm. and his fear of black men. And, and then he said, however, Kai, um, but I want to change. And I want to know what your guest, meaning me, can tell me to do to become a better American. Mm. And that really touched me. I mean, it, you know, I had a whole bunch of different emotions in one moment, but basically I ended up telling, giving him some advice, right? Thanking him, first of all, mm-hmm. for being honest about his prejudice and his bias, because it's it's something we need to do as a society to get past it. And then I gave him some ideas and that, that exchange between the two of us went viral. And, um, you know, it was one of those moments where I realized that, you know, the Garys of the world have a very strong narrative about who's on their team um, and who's a threat to them. And it's this zero-sum story that says that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. Um, it's, a story that, it's a story that is completely counter to what economics and law, right, what I was trained in, w- would tell you. Um, but it's a really predominant story in the American imagination, particularly among white Americans, for whom it's much more a predominant story, this idea that we can't all prosper together. We're going to take a short break uh, and come back to that story. I'm talking with Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. The book is now a podcast in which Heather travels the country finding stories about racial solidarity. And we can take calls from you. Do you have student debt? Does it feel worth it? Has it helped you or held you back? And whether you have student debt or not, how do you feel when you hear about student debt relief? We'll talk about it after a break. Stay with us. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex, of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. I'm joined by author Heather McGee. Her best-selling book is called The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. 
And this summer, she turned the book into a podcast in which you can now join her as she travels around the country looking for stories about racial solidarity and racial healing. Uh, And Heather, when President Biden announced the student debt relief plan, uh, several Republican leaders began to articulate a kind of resentment of the sort that you were Mm -hmm. hinting at um, before the break. Uh, That there's this idea that, you know, why should these elite college grads get debt (laughs) relief when we, whoever the we is, uh, did not? And that was, of course, political opportunism, excuse me, opportunism. But nonetheless, it is a very real emotion, as you said, that some people have. And I'm just wondering, how do you respond to and unpack that emotion, this idea that if this set of people get help, it's going to take something from me? Well, first of all, a few facts, right? Um, 90% of the student loan benefit is going to families who earn less than $75,000 a year. Right. This is not about rich kids. This is not about Harvard students. Less than 3% of Harvard students actually take out federal loans, right? Federal loans go mostly to working and middle class families. Um, The biggest benefit of $20,000 is going to people who took out Pell Grants. And those, as I said before, should have been higher so that these people who, you know, their families are making you know, very modest incomes, um, shouldn't have had to take out loans in the first place, right? We we are right now an outlier in allowing in the, you know, industrialized countries in turning away from our own history and our own legacy of creating the American dream in making this a private cost instead of a public good. So this is the administration doing everything it can within its authority um, to try to undo that mistake, right? The debt for diploma system, as my former colleague Tammy Drought calls it, you know, was a mistake. And if Republicans think it's unfair, they should join with Democrats in Congress and pass the kinds of bills that will make sure that nobody in the future has to go deeply into debt to go to particularly public college. But um, those but, facts said, Heather, I mean, you do, I mean, you, you, and you talk about this at length in the podcast, and I think it's a really important point, is that nonetheless, emotionally, all the facts laid to the side, emotionally, there are people who believe that something is being taken from them if, yeah. if we have uh, more public support for for debt-free college. And and that's what I want to hear you respond to for those individuals, you know? Um, What is it you say to them? Well, listen, just like I'm not resentful when, you know, um, uh, a new park gets built in a state I don't live in, when, (laughs) uh, you know, when a new military bomber uh, gets funded with my tax dollars, um, when all of these things, right, that we pay for federally, it, it is all of it is an investment in our common good. And ultimately, we all are better off if there are more educated people in our society, right, to take care of us when we go to see a doctor, to educate our children, to be our neighbors, to, to be strong citizens who, you know, can think critically about our leaders. Ultimately, this is going to be Uh, an economic liberation for a whole generation of people that everyone in this country is depending on, right? If you look at the impact of student debt on um, young people's uh, ability to save for retirement, to support their aging parents, um, to buy homes, right, to start new businesses, right? We've got people paying back Uncle Sam for something that should never have been so expensive instead of starting a new business that might solve the next big problem, right? And so it is in our best interest to be a liberated uh, entrepreneurial, innovative, well-educated society. And this shackle of student debt, which is an, sort of a, a big mistake in American history, um, is one that is costing all of us. The first episode of your podcast is called Why We Can't Have Nice Things. Um, and, uh, and it uses, uh, you alluded to this metaphor earlier about, um, drained pools as an example, um, to sort of get at this, this bigger picture that you're talking about here. Um, and you tell the story of a pool in, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which is a place near and dear to my heart. My mom grew up near there, uh, where, uh, there is a, uh, a, a, f- a field of oak trees instead of a pool that used to exist. Can you 
What happened to that pool and why is that an important sort of illustration for what you're talking about? Well, what happened to the Montgomery pool is what happened to many of the country's nearly 2,000 lavishly funded grand resort style public swimming pools that used to exist in this country that were part of a building boom in the 1930s and 40s of public goods. And what happened was so many of those public pools were segregated for whites only, not just in places like Montgomery, Alabama, but in Ohio, New Jersey, West Virginia, California, either explicitly with a whites only sign in Jim Crow states or just by custom and often enforced through intimidation and violence. And I liken the public swimming pool, right, the glory days of this like beautiful, free public asset made in the New Deal era of public goods to the other economic public goods of that period, right? Social security for the elderly, a massive investment in housing that workers could afford, afford subsidized home ownership, the GI Bill, right, the glory days of uh, free college, right? All of that was kind of part of this formula for creating the American dream. And every single thing I just mentioned in terms of economic policy was like the public swimming pools Mm. and segregated for whites only in so many different ways, either explicitly with language like you have to be wholly of the Caucasian race to get into one of these subsidized housing developments or just by um, being, you know, filtered through often segregated um, sectors of the society, like the GI Bill, right, which had benefits that were in education and housing to very segregated sectors, right? And so what happened is that in the late 1950s and early 1960s, as desegregation orders came from the courts uh, and Black families said, you know, it's our tax dollars that have been funding these public goods and these public pools, and we want our kids to swim. Many towns and cities drained their public swimming pools rather than integrate them. And of course, what that meant, Kai, was that the whole town lost out on this grand public pool when the majority of white Americans sort of turned away from a public good once it included all of the public, even members of the public that they had been taught were not good. And for me, drained pool politics helps explain how we went from a society that had all of these robust public goods to support the American dream for the average white family to a go-it-alone, drained pool, um, shifting the cost onto individuals, going from a public good to a private cost. And one of the greatest, most vivid examples of drained pool politics in our society is this unprecedented, foolhardy um, retreat from free and debt-free college to create a nearly $2 trillion student loan debt burden. Two, nearly two trillion dollars. It's it's really quite a number. Uh, we have a number of comments on YouTube. Uh, someone says, "I went to an HBCU and enjoyed my time there, but I went on to get another degree, and I owe seventy thousand dollars in student loans. Uh, I was unemployed and couldn't pay, and now I don't know what I will do." I, it's mm-hmm. there's there are a lot of stories like that. Um, to talk a bit about the personal impact that uh, that our our commenter on YouTube mentioned that, you know, people yeah. are walking around with $70,000 in, in student debt. And and again, I hear the point, right? Like that there's, we have to be careful about who we're talking about here. There are people who have um, debt from, you know, expensive elite institutions on one hand. Um, and uh, there are, but the vast majority of debt is from people who went to um, public schools, right? Um, mm-hmm. But that said, whatever your number is, it's really quite crippling to people in, their, in the economy. Yeah. And so can you just speak to how that shows up in people's lives. It does. I mean, there's been a ton of good research about this, but I mean, it just think about it, right? If, if you know that you um, owe not just $70,000, but $70,000 that's growing by 5% and compounding interest a year, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? It would be one thing if it was just like, I cut these checks, I paid this tuition, and that's it. And I owe exactly what I took. But instead, we have compounding interest, which means that um, a really significant number of people four, five, ten years out of college have paid off their principal um, or have been paying off their principal, but because of interest still owe more than they borrowed, right? Um, I personally uh, am, am in, have been in that situation many times, looked at my statement and said, huh, why do I owe more than I borrowed, right? <laughs> um, and, and I understand how compounding interest works. <laughs> right, so you get the math, that's not it. the point. Right. <laughs> 
Um, so there's that piece of it. Um, there's also the piece in which I think um, it's it's really wonderful that we can talk about HBCUs and we can talk about particularly Black borrowers here because a significant part of the pushback from right-wingers has been that um, it's become part of the sort of public understanding, part of the way the administration has talked about the benefits of this, that canceling student debt would um, be for in furtherance of racial equity because Black students um, are much more likely to have to borrow for college mm-hmm. and at higher amounts. And, and as we said, right, it's that drain pool politics where, um, you know, when it was mostly white students going to college, it was free. And now for this diversifying student body, you know, now they have to pay for it and with interest. And that that's just sort of generationally unfair and there's a racial cast to it. But so few of the discussions about this explain why Black students borrow at such high amounts and at such high rates. Um, and it's because of the racial wealth gap, right? I right. talked about how Black families were barred legally from you know, being part of the free stuff and the handouts of the public goods era in the early 20th century, right? So right now, a Black college graduate has less household wealth, right? Home equity, securities, stocks and bonds, et cetera, than a white high school dropout, right? A Black college graduate less wealthy than on average a white high school dropout. And and that should tell us that the Black college graduate has done everything they're supposed to do, right? They've gone to college. They probably actually have a high income. But what they can't do is go back in time and make sure that their grandparents weren't redlined out of home ownership, right? right? Because wealth accumulates over time. And so when you see the, the... explicit unfairness, the explicit racial discrimination that has led to eight out of 10 Black students not having intergenerational wealth that they can draw on to pay those tuition bills. You see how important it is for us to not be afraid of um, doing the right thing. And what's great about this student loan debt cancellation is it's not a zero sum, right? White students, six out of 10 have to borrow two, right? White students have college debt. Black students have college debt. Everybody has college <laughs> debt these days. So let's cancel it and keep the engine of and our economy moving, right? There, there's a lot of people want to talk about interest rates uh, on our <laughs> YouTube channel. Uh, and let's. And I believe Lisa in Cleveland, Ohio has a question about that. So Lisa, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thanks. If there were a policy change tomorrow for everybody of 0% interest, people with educational debt would pay back the cost of tuition, but no interest. How would that change the discussion psychologically and politically? Thank you for that, Lisa. And I think you've you've been talking about uh, a little bit, Heather, about how it would actually change things substantively. But I like Lisa's question here about like what, how you think it might shift the way people enter this conversation and the way people think about this conversation. You know, I wish, Lisa, that I think that any kind of tweak in the policy would change the emotions around this, right? Because ultimately, um, we absolutely do need to do more to refund public college, to bring tuition down. Um, there are a bunch of pieces of the administration's move that are not the top line 10 and $20,000 that are actually going to make it so that borrowers in the future, even if Congress continues to do nothing, borrowers in the future will never have to pay more than 5% of their income. And there's just like a lot of reforms that people aren't really paying attention to that will make it much easier for future borrowers to have a much more modest payment and then to have it canceled after just 10 years. So you know, the policy tweaks have been made so that there isn't a lot of interest that is going to be paid in the future on federal loans. And that's a great thing. But ultimately, you know, I mean, let's look at these lawsuits, right? So the lawsuit that um, was from Wisconsin was saying that it's unfair to white people for this to be something that advances racial equity. Like, thank goodness, um, you know, that was tossed out, but it was tossed out because, of, you know, standing, which Mm -hmm. is sort of a technicality. Um, And I don't know, frankly, what the majority of racial conservatives on the court would have done if they, you know, had the opportunity and had taken up the opportunity. And then this last piece of um, litigation that has paused the cancellation, although people should still apply, the White House and the administration are still going through applications, um, is, is... 
basically a bunch of Republicans standing up for the student loan servicers in their states saying that somehow this would rob them of money, right? They are literally standing up from the people who call you and hound you and, you know, send you bills and mess up your payments and all of that, right? Like that's who the right (laughs) wing is standing up for right now. Um, So I think it's not, I think it's not about the policy design, right? It's about power. It's about a fundamental narrative. I mean, what's great but, is that well, the majority let, of Americans support this policy. Let me ask you on that point, because we got only got a couple of minutes left here, and we have not gotten to the second part of your book title, which is the How We Can Prosper Together. Uh, yeah. You're asserting, and you have an idea here, that there is a groundswell of Americans who are ready to move past pool drain politics is, is yeah. and, and I think a lot of people hearing that would say, huh? Um, so in 60 seconds, what is it you're seeing that the rest of us aren't? I spent the last six months, the first six months of 2022 on the road, going to new places that I didn't even visit in my book, finding new stories, hopeful stories for the podcast, The Some of Us. And these are stories of ordinary people being willing to roll up their sleeves and link arms across lines of race to win big things that nobody can win on their own. And it is a story that is underreported, right? It doesn't lead... um, in the news, but it's happening all over the country. And I am just so thrilled that the sort of energy of the movement summer of 2020 um, has actually, it hasn't gone away. It's sort mm. of settled into many people and fundamentally changed the way many people, white, black, and brown, look at the world. And we see that we can do great things together. Your lips to uh, the universe's <laughs> ears. Uh, Heather McGee is author of the best-selling book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. The book is also a podcast, uh, and you can now get that wherever you get your podcast. Thanks, Heather. Thank you, Kai. And thanks to all of you who called in. Keep talking to us. You can go to our website, notesfromamerica.org, and record a voice message for us right there. Uh, that's notesfromamerica.org. Or you can find us on social. We are at on Twitter and Instagram at Notes with Kai. Matthew Miranda is our live engineer. Music and mixing by Jared Paul. Our team also includes Regina Dehir, Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending this time with us, and I will talk to you next week. Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting, but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged.